we open up back to Matthew chapter 9. We looked at some different things in the last couple of weeks. I think the last time we kind of were together, we were back up towards the beginning of the chapter. And this was talking about Jesus healing the man with paralysis who was lying on the bed. And that when he told him that his sins were forgiven him, the Pharisees reacted to this and they immediately said, who is this man who can forgive sins? And obviously, Jesus kind of made a little retort to that and told the man to get up, go walking, and of course he did. So he was making two statements of, of healing in that section of Scripture. And the people glorified God and marveled at what he had done. That was verse 8. And then Jesus had met with Matthew and or Levi and called him. And we talked about that. And we talked about Jesus choosing a man who, out of the others that he had chosen, this guy seemed the most out of place. He was not the most beloved. He was a tax collector and a publican, as they call him. So he was one that was despised of other Jews. And so, again, we were making the point that Jesus was making a very poor PR decision at this point to choose this man because it wasn't the most uh, desirous person, okay? But he chose him anyway because that's who he wanted. And we talked about him then proceeding and sitting down and eating with other publicans, tax collectors, as well as a mishmash of Pharisees and how the Pharisees judged him saying, if this man was the Messiah, if he was God, he would know what manner of man that he eats with. How can he eat with these publicans and sinners and jesus made the point that i came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance obviously if i was surrounded by a bunch of righteous people that'd be hard to do so he makes the point that he was here for sinners he came for sinners and so to be eating with sinners is just what he's here to do and then as he proceeded on he talks about something that we didn't necessarily address but uh, we were talking about the Pharisees, the disciples of John actually, and then the Pharisees asking Jesus about fasting and why his disciples didn't fast like the disciples of John fasted. And of course, the Pharisees jumped in and said, yeah, yeah, what about that? Because of course, the Pharisees were very externally righteous and proud people, and they wanted to jump in on what John's disciples were kind of trying to figure out from Jesus. And Jesus proceeded to tell them about a bridegroom and a bride and about fasting and when to fast. And then he goes on to talk about old garments and new cloth and old wine and new bottles. And again, teaching things about the old way of doing things cannot be stuck with the new way. Okay. And so he's making a point to the disciples of John as well as to Pharisees that the so-called fasting that y'all had done in the past, the traditions of fasting that you had come up with, they don't work as you are trying to smash them in with what we're talking about. Jesus was talking to his disciples and, just, and talking to the disciples of John, and he was saying there's a new thing that's going on here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you're going to keep trying to push us under this old tradition that you have come up with over the years and it won't work okay you cannot put new wine into old bottles it'll burst it you cannot put a new patch in the reverse you can't put a new patch on an old garment because when that patch is shrunk it will pull away from the hole 
So he's making a point that as you try to shove the new quote-unquote way of doing things into your old traditional way of doing things, it doesn't match. And what he's done is, is he's done this throughout the whole discourse here in Matthew. He said, the way that you have heard it said is not my way. Okay, And so he's making this point with the idea of the wine and the wineskins. And then we had the story, which we briefly discussed at the nursing home a few weeks back, of the two healings that then followed from that, that as Jesus is going along, you have two people that approach him. One of them is the woman with the issue of blood, the woman with the issue of blood uh, who has been dealing with this for 12 years. She has sought out many physicians, talked about this being a hemorrhage, um, particular to a woman, and that she's been dealing with this for 12 years. Um, not to mention just the medical hardships from all of that, the physical hardships from all of that, but also the emotional and the spiritual hardships from all of that because she was ritually unclean. She was not allowed in public. She wasn't allowed to touch other people because if other people touched her or even things that she sat on, they would be unclean for seven days too. So there was a lot of just stigma associated with this, and this poor woman did nothing to deserve it and could not get any help to fix it. This wasn't something that she got because of riotous living or because she didn't do things right. This was just a problem that she had, but unfortunately it cursed her to a life of obscurity because she couldn't interact with people. She couldn't go to the temple, so she was out on the outskirts. We also have the healing of Jairus' daughter. Jairus, as we talked about, was the prominent leader or ruler of the synagogue. We discussed about the uh, political as well as the religious kind of... Um, stepping out a limb that he did here because he approached Jesus. He recognized Jesus' power and authority, and he asked Jesus to heal his daughter who had died. And so you have him stepping out on a limb because Jairus was a ruler of a synagogue, more than likely of the Pharisee sect. And here he was going to this man that the Pharisees wholeheartedly rejected. And so for him to do that, he was committing political suicide, so to speak. But he didn't care. Because his daughter was dying and he was going to do anything that he could to prevent that. So you see both of these people, and we discussed this at the nursing home, both of these people had come to desperation points, okay? There were points in their lives where nothing else mattered, none of the stigma, none of the social requirements, none of the religious or political jockeying mattered anymore because I'm at a point in my life where the most dearest thing about me or for me or with me is in trouble, and I need to go and find the one who can help me. And, of course, that was only Jesus. They'd already sought out all the medical people, at least with the woman with the issue of blood. She'd been to doctors for 12 years. She expended herself on the natural things that could help her. But when she saw Jesus, she had hope and knew that he could heal her. And so she wasn't going to let anything stop her from doing that. Same thing with Jairus. He knew that Jesus could heal him. I don't care about what I have to say politically. I don't care about what people will think about me for doing this. I have got to do this because I know Jesus can heal her. And so I will sacrifice it all for that. So two beautiful testimonies about the desperation points that we will get to in, in life, the places where we come to life. And it can be on a range of things. It can be natural and physical ailments and things that we come to that we realize that, you know, maybe we should have gone to them at first. But at least at this point, when we get to desperation points, we realize that Jesus is the only answer. 
And so we go to him, and we don't care what family or friends or co-workers or neighbors or however it might be perceived, whatever weakness it might engender in my social strata or whatever, I'm sacrificing it all, I'm giving it all up for Jesus so that Jesus, so that I can find healing in Jesus. So here we continue on, and if we look down... In verse 27, we have the next two healings that follow. In Matthew chapter 9, in verse 27, it says this, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to see him. And Jesus said unto them, Believe you that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yes, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. And I think that's kind of a pun, you know, play on words. See, blind men get it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all the country. And they went out, behold, and as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. And when the devil was cast out, the mute spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons, or devils, through the prince of devils. And Jesus went about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So the first healing we have here is the healing of the two blind men. And again, we have a kind of a miraculous healing type of situation going on here because this is the first time as we come through the gospel accounts this is the first time that it's mentioned that Jesus healed here this blind man two of them actually so you have these two blind men here that are crying out to Jesus and he heals them now there's other times when he heals multitudes and there's probably blind involved with that okay but here these two are particularly noted but what's so particular and interesting about them is that they call to him. Again, these two blind men call to Jesus as he is passing by. And they cry out saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now, some interesting facts about all this. Number one is you have blind men crying out and following Jesus. Okay, So you get this mental picture in your head of these two blind men who can't see, obviously, but they are chasing down, following after Jesus. Now, that's just in and of itself a picture of desperation of two men who can't see where they're going, but yet they're tracking him, following him, going after him, seeking him for healing. But the second most important thing out of all of this is their use of the Messianic title, Son of David. It's used 16 times in the New Testament. And that that Messianic title was taken from sections of Scripture like Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 23, Ezekiel chapter 34. But in those sections of Scripture, especially like in Jeremiah 23, we'll read that real quick. Jeremiah 23, verses 3 through 6, it says, And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up David a righteous branch. 
And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness or Jehovah Sidkenu. So you see in this section of scripture, he says that the branch of Jesse, the branch of uh, David, a raise up David, a branch, a righteous branch. And that's a messianic prophecy because obviously at this time, David is dead. Okay. And then you'll pull a line from Peter in Acts chapter two. Let me speak freely of our patriarch, David. He is both dead and buried. Okay. So these sections of scripture obviously cannot refer to David literally because David is dead. Okay. So who would be the David that is to come? The offspring or son of David? Well, you have Jesus Christ, the son of David, but that's a messianic title. That title though is used in other places and it kind of lends to the natural lineage of it because when the angel appears to Joseph and tells him that you can go in and you can take your wife Mary because that thing that is is being born in her is a thing of the Lord, he says and directly calls Joseph, thou son of David. So he is tying a natural lineage to him, but he's also in this section of scripture, he's giving a more prophetic messianic title. And that was the messianic title that was used by these two men, son of David. That was recognizing something in Jesus that other men around him refused to recognize. Okay. So if you think about that here, you have kind of these unexpected people of faith. Again, unexpected people of faith. It's not at this point or yet that we have Peter declare, you know, well, who say you that I am? Well, I declare thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. We haven't gotten to that point with the apostles say, stating that, open that, declaring that openly. We don't have at the point where his followers are declaring that openly. We have it kind of as a thing where people are still trying to figure it out. We still even have John the Baptist who in about a chapter or two later is actually going to send men back to Jesus and say, will you please just declare to you, are you the son of God or should we seek another? Okay, so you still have this kind of questioning, not sure about it. Is he the one? Is he not? But these two blind men got it figured out. These two blind men who have have not been following Jesus the whole time. Okay, they haven't been with Jesus through everything. They they weren't there probably at the Jordan when he was baptized. I mean, they weren't there at all these different occurrences, all these different miracles. Maybe let's just say in the last few days they've been following him. Maybe they saw the last few healings here. Okay, but number two, they didn't see anything. They didn't witness anything. They're blind. Yet the testimony of two blind men by faith is that thou art Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. Jesus will tell Thomas in the end of the Gospels when Thomas comes up to him and says, you know, well, I'm not going to believe you unless I see the hands and see your side and see where you've been pierced. And Jesus walks up to Thomas and says, well, take a look. Okay, you see him. But then he tells Thomas, he says, blessed, he says, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Here you have these two men who literally could not see. 
they couldn't verify the stories that they had heard, even if they had heard them and maybe caught rumors around the, the water cooler here at this point in time about, hey, you know this guy named Jesus, he's running around, he's healing people with issues of blood, he saved Jairus' daughter, you know, all these things. They say, wow, that sounds crazy. Well, these two blind men could not witness that. They couldn't bear that out. Let me ask you this. Do you believe everything you hear? <laughs> no. I'll stay away from saying fake news, but, you know, do you hear everything? Do you believe everything you hear? Okay. Do you believe everything you see? Sometimes not even that. Again, I can't flip on the TV without going, man, I cannot believe the stupidity I'm seeing. But all this that you see with these two men, they did not have that faculty. They're blind. So it's a beautiful picture of kind of the unexpected people of faith. For us, we fall back on the default that we have to see it to believe it. We have to bear glimpses of it. Again, we talk about this on Wednesday nights and we talk about this on Sundays in and out. You know, we talk about, can I just see that sign? Can I just see that action? Can I see, Lord, you know, this is one of those times, Lord, I just need you to come down and I need you to heal in this miraculous way. Just let me see it so that I can then have more assurance in what I believe in. So here, it's not with the religious elite, it's not with the social leaders who are proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. It's these two blind men, which speaks to the overwhelming truth of the faith that is within them without even being able to see. So the points for us to consider here in this section of scripture are this, that we have to kind of question ourselves because, see, they recognize Jesus. They recognize his divinity. They recognize his Messiahhood. They declare it that he is son of David. That is a declaration that he is the Messiah. Now they can do this without ever having seen him or having seen anything that he did. You know, it's one of those things that sometimes when we look at like the scriptures and we talk about how what Jesus looked like and the portrayal of Jesus, well, we always flip back over to Isaiah and you'd be like, oh, look, you know, he's not going to be comely. He's going to be marred. He's going to be one that you're not going to want to be naturally attracted to or whatever. And we kind of say, well, there's this visible picture of Jesus in the Old Testament that you could gain some clarity on. And really, we use that to say, you see the pictures of him all blonde hair and blue eyed. That ain't Jesus because he wasn't white. You know, we kind of make sure we stress that. And remember, Jesus is kind of uh, he, he's outside of our ethnic majority here. So when you look, though, at this, these guys were blind to these things. Yet they believe, they know, they declare that Jesus is the Messiah. So for us in that way, let's ask us that question. How do we view Jesus? Do we view Jesus in the way that these men did? Thou son of David. Thou righteous king, thou, thou God with all authority, our Lord, our master, our king. Do we recognize Jesus in that way or is Jesus just a genie in a bottle for us? Do we just recognize him? You notice that these people, yes, they were coming to him for healing. They were coming to him because they needed or wanted something from him. But they recognized firsthand who he was. He was not a witch doctor to them. He was not a holy healer to them. 
He was not some Jewish, you know, uh, exorcist like we read about in Acts. He was not some magician. He was the son of David. Such a specific title. They could have just called him Jesus. They would have heard of that. They could have called him Jesus the Christ. They might have even thrown out there maybe a son of man. Okay? We have others using that phrase. Here, though, they use this very specific title that ties him to the Old Testament pictures and not just tying him to the Old Testament Messianic prophecies, but tying him to the prophecy like we just saw, the one who was going to be that shepherd that was going to come and heal, that was going to take care of his people. That's the title they were looking for. So how do we view him? Do we view him that way or do we just still view him maybe sometimes as a genie in a bottle? In a, Lord, I need you today for this. God, I need you for this. Jesus, help me with this. How do we view Jesus? And the second thing was that the just shall live by faith. We see this over and over and over and over and over again with these healings. Jesus in just this chapter with three or four different people. Jesus in the previous chapters, he's gone on and on and on and gone, your faith is has made it so unto your faith, be it accredited or whatever he, the phrasing he's used with these different people. The just shall live by faith. These men did not do anything special. These men did not, their testimony, or the testimony, I should say, of their faith was that they believed in Jesus and his ability. Okay? It wasn't something that they did. It wasn't, you know, you look at the woman and sometimes with the woman who had the issue of blood, we want to kind of use her actions and we talk about that being her faith. Oh, look how she crawled and she grabbed the hem of his garment. No, that's not the testimony of her faith. The testimony of her faith is she believed Jesus, okay? She believed that he could. She believed that he would. She believed in him. And then the actions flowed from that. I believe that Jesus is the way, truth, and life. Therefore, I'm willing to crawl all across this whole church to get to the back end of it just to be able to grab the hem of his garment. I believe that he has the power to heal my blindness. So I'm going to follow him, even though I'm blind, which has got to be a pretty scary thing. I mean, who knows where he was going? And in fact, you even see him. He doesn't stop. I mean, you're almost like, come on, Jesus. I mean, throw the people a bone. They can't see here. Slow up, you know. Slow your roll. Quit quit trying to outrun him. And then he goes and dives into a house. They follow him in the house. Again, it's like, come on, Jesus. Give, just give him a break. I mean, turn around. Talk to him outside the house. You don't know if maybe he was maybe testing their faith a little bit. Let me see how far you'll go with me. Okay? You just want me for a cheap healing or are you really coming after me? Did you use that phrase because you thought it would get my attention or are you willing to come follow me? Let me just go ahead and throw this out here as a stepping on all of our toes. If two blind men will follow Jesus wherever he goes, you with me? If two blind men can follow Jesus wherever he goes without any assurance, without any promise, without any guarantee of receiving anything... Yet sometimes we have a hard time following Jesus when we can see just fine. And when we've got maps and GPS and everything else to go along with it. When we've got spiritual maps and GPS and everything to go along with it. When we have all the promises, all the promises and the assurances that we have from his word. And yet two blind men will show us up. So 
we just need to make sure we recognize that these men live by faith. They are pursuing Christ because of their faith. They believe in Christ because of their faith. And the just shall live by faith. So are we living by our faith? Are we living by our belief in Jesus Christ? The next section, he talks about the man who was possessed with the devil. And we'll call it, you know, again, you have this kind of language thing that dumb there is not a very good term to use. Okay. And that's really, that's a, uh, that's an archaic interpretation of someone who can't speak. Right. Which kind of plays into the whole reason why people in the deaf community have a problem with hearing people because for so long they were referred to as dumb. Well, they didn't, they're not dumb. They're not intellectually incapacitated in any sort of way. They have a physical ailment, okay, that prevents them from hearing and speaking, okay? So the idea, though, or the historical idea was these people were, they just weren't as smart as everybody else. That's why they couldn't talk. So... We kind of replace that word with mute, which is what it should be. So as they went out, behold, they brought to him a mute man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the mute spake and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel, but the Pharisees said he casteth out devils through the prince of devils. And if you look over in Mark and other accounts of the same thing, it will talk about that in He'll say that, uh, like Matthew chapter 12, this fellow doth uh, not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Okay, so we've probably talked about that, and we won't get in depth into that just yet, because that's chapter 12, and we're on chapter 9, so we'll get there eventually. But here you have, with the, with the healing of this guy, this is a, again, this is a first time conveying to us that he healed someone who could not speak. Okay? And it was a marvelous thing. The people reacted in the same way. I cannot believe this. I cannot believe this happened. The people in the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. Now, we know at another occasion when Jesus heals a blind man that was blind from his birth. Okay, And then he goes in and he's talking to the people and makes the point, Have you ever heard of this ever happening? Have you ever heard of anyone doing this in all of history? So it must be of God. Here you have him talking about that in the case of the mute person. Have you ever heard anyone do this? Have you ever seen anyone be able to do this? There's something special about this then. There's something special about this man if he's able to do this. You know, Ecclesiastes will talk about there's nothing new under the sun. But this was something new. Jesus was doing a new thing. No one had ever seen this. So this is an occurrence. This is an important thing to stop and meditate on because it's the first time that this has happened and it's the first time that it's been recorded in this way. But you see that when... And, and there is, there's if you look at the occurrence in chapter 12, again, you have almost a retelling of this um, between the two chapters because the one that was possessed with the devil in chapter 12 was both blind and mute and he healed him so that the blind and the mute both spake and saw and the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David, you know? Does this not make sense? And the Pharisees heard it and said he cast him out by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Well, what's important about this is that this is one of the categories of healing that is a confirmation of Christ's messianic abilities. Okay? 
Because if you look again, as we, we referenced this earlier, when you go to Matthew chapter 11 and you look at where Christ sends the disciples of John back and he tells them, you go tell John again these things. What he says is that the blind receive their sight, number one. The lame walk, we've got that one. The lepers have cleansed, we've got that one. And the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So those who were mute and deaf being healed, well, that is a confirmation of Jesus' messianic abilities. That section of scripture right there is a prophecy coming from Old Testament. This is something that they prophesied and said, you will see these things done by the Messiah. But there's something important else to grab about this. As you think about it, the two blind men... I'm not going to say they didn't see Jesus. They heard Jesus coming. They sought Jesus out and Jesus rewarded them, as he says, according to their faith. Here, this guy is not in that same situation. This guy is in a different situation. This guy is not screaming out for help. This guy is brought to Jesus and Jesus intervenes. This guy didn't ask for it. It's not, it's not kind of responded or, or told back that this was according to his faith, that this was done. This is Jesus interacting in a sovereign way to fix this man, okay? So this possession that's affecting him, it's definitely affecting him in a physical manner, okay? So we obviously, we have a person who can't speak. Deaf and mutinous usually go hand in hand. And also this guy was blind. So I mean, this guy's, guy's got it pretty bad. But what we see is that there's underlying in this. What was the underlying cause of the physical condition? Was it a natural deformity? Or was it a spiritual problem? Well, he was possessed, so we're obviously going to have to think that it's spiritual. Because when the demon was cast out, everything goes back to normal. So it's important to grab out of this situation that the man's physical problems were related to a spiritual battle that was kind of undergirding the whole situation. So again, the points to consider in this is that we look at this guy and, you know, we kind of marvel or we, we at least, at least we should marvel, okay, in the fact that this guy was not in the, pos I guess you could say the position, okay, to seek out help from Jesus, Okay, he was brought to Jesus and Jesus intervened. This guy in no shape, form or fashion asked for it, requested it, sought Jesus. I mean, that's just kind of the situation we see with these spiritually possessed people. Okay, the wild, um, as we call him, the wild Gadarene guy. Okay, he did not come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, cast these demons out for me. I've got a monkey on my back. I need help. Okay. In fact, the only thing that's really said is the demons run up to Jesus with the guy and say, hey, don't cast us out. Or if you do cast us out, don't throw us into the abyss. And please, I mean, the only one that really had a two-way conversation in that situation were the demons, not the man. So this poor guy was helpless in that situation. He was kind of on the whims of the demon that was possessing him. But Jesus saw fit to heal this man. Jesus saw fit to intercede on this man's behalf. Jesus in his kind of sovereign shepherd, and I don't know what the good name would, what would be the name for it, shepherdhood, shepherdship, shepherd whatever. 
But this kind of testifies back to that scripture in Ezekiel 34 that we read. I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. You get the picture of Jesus taking care of his flock here. He taking care of this Sheep. In one situation, you see the same picture with a blind man who sought after Jesus by faith and asked him to heal him. And here you see this man who is desperately lost, no ability, and Jesus heals him too. And it testifies to Jesus' amazing love and capacity for his sheep. You know, it reminds me of the parable that Jesus talked about in the song that we sing about, that the 99 and the 1... That I will forsake the 99 who are in the good pasture, who are in the good flock, who are not lost, who are enjoying the fat of the land under my care. And I'm going to leave them to go after that one. He didn't say, well, I've got 99, or I'm, I'm going to say that right. I've got 99, okay, because that song is about 99, exactly. okay. So 99, I've got 99. If I'm talking about odds, I'm pretty good, okay. I've got 1% of my flock that's gone AWOL. I can, I, can, I can account. That's okay. I've got 99. Jesus didn't back away from it and go, you know what? That one, what's one? Okay. I can replace one. I can deal with the loss of one. How important is really one sheep? And Jesus says, so important that I am willing to go all the way through all the brambles, all the briars, all the distressing places in this world to go get that one that's wrapped up and mired down in this world and to bring him safely home. So here with this man who is possessed by the demon that we look at and say, there is no help for this man. And Jesus says, no, I am the help for this man. I'm going to heal him. So we have to recognize also with this that there are those spiritual problems and those spiritual battles that are going on underneath sometimes that are undergirding the physical problems. So sometimes it's not just the physical problem that we have to address. And sometimes, like you see in so many cases, you can work and work and work and work at that physical problem and you can try your best to cure it and nothing ever happens. So you can go and if you have issues with depression, you can try your best. If you're not, again, this, is, this goes back again with anything that we do medically. You know, I can look and I can just treat the symptoms, okay? And you look at it and say, oh, well, your nose is running. Okay, well, here's a Claritin for that. Oh, your head's hurting. Well, here's a Tylenol for that. Oh, well, here's, you know, whatever. You're coughing. Okay, well, here's some Robitussin for that, okay? Or, and I can treat the symptoms all day. Or I can address the root problem, which is that sinus infection or that bronchitis or whatever it may be. And I can give you an antibiotic and kill the bug. And now all those other symptoms go away. So sometimes when people are dealing with issues like identity issues or sexuality issues or whether they're dealing with depression issues or kind of 
um, suicidal issues and those kind of things. There is a lot of things that we can do, and yes, there are plenty and very much needed medical treatment things that are needed, okay? And I'm not throwing off on that at all, but there's an underlying issue too. Your depression may be linked back to the fact that you do not believe in Jesus Christ. Your, your suicidal thoughts may be because you don't see you have any worth, because you don't see yourself as worth anything in the eyes of Jesus Christ. You may have, be struggling with identity issues because you're trying to pick out of the smorgasbord of identities that the world tells you you have to find and get in with. Instead of getting in with the one true identity, which is your identity in Jesus Christ. So you can continue and we can always continue to treat the symptoms of the problem. We can try to treat all the physical ailments with all the things that the world tells us we can treat it with. Or sometimes we need to just get down to the nitty gritty inner spiritual problem. Your depression may not be because the weather is bad outside. It may be because you're not in the word of God and you're not reflecting on the beautiful promises of Jesus Christ. Your loneliness may not be because you live in a place where nobody is around you or you have had a job change and now everything you don't have your same friends or whatever it may be. Your loneliness may not be related to that. It may be that you have lost sight of the best friend you will ever have, Jesus Christ. You may feel like you're at midlife and you have no purpose in life and you got to go out and buy a Camaro or whatever it may be and go out and get a tattoo or whatever it may be because your midlife crisis has hit and you don't know what your life is worth or for or how you accomplished anything and you need to remember that it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the whole time, every time, that is the solution. That was the solution for this demon-possessed man. That was the solution for the blind men, that was the solution for the women with the issue of blood, that was the solution for Jairus' daughter, that was the solution for the lepers, that's been the solution the whole time, and I'm just going to have to break it to you and be incredibly boring, it's the same solution today. So we need Jesus for our salvation. Not just the physical healing, but the spiritual as well. Jesus is the only source for that. So it goes on and it says that when the devil was cast out and the dumb spake, or the mute spake, sorry, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casted out devils with the prince of the devils. And Jesus went about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, what's again, we talk about, and we won't dive into this. We'll talk about this when we get to chapter 12. But you know, he makes that point about, well, he casts out demons by the prince of the devils, Beelzebub. And when we go into the idea of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which is not forgiven. But what I want you to catch more from this is just the recurring theme of the different responses. You have those who are so hard hearted and objectly against Jesus that when they see that, their reaction is to go so far off the deep end. The only way this guy could be doing it is if he was casting it out by the devil himself. That's pretty far. We've gotten kind of way off base with that, okay? 
But you can see, you know, again, this just plays into human nature in general. You sit there and all you have to do is flip on either CNN, Fox News, or one of them, and you will see people who will make the most outrageous jumps to the furthest conclusion. Okay? That don't that aren't even anywhere close to the core of the argument or the position of the problem, but they jump to the furthest conclusion because it's the most incendiary, it's the one that gets the most ratings, and it's the one that will distract people from what the real problem really is. So here these people did not want them to follow Jesus. So what am I going to do? Well, let me just throw out this curveball. He did it by the devil himself. Well, that's a pretty inflammatory, incendiary, off-the-base kind of thing, Okay. But more importantly, you see the response of the people. The multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. Now, it may not mean that every one of those in that multitudes believed in Jesus Christ and thought he was the son of David, but they definitely could at least by their natural eyes alone recognize this is something miraculous. This is something that has not happened in Israel. This is something we have never seen before. And they marveled at it. And then Jesus proceeded on to do exactly what Jesus came to do. I'm going to go preach the gospel. I'm going to heal sickness everywhere among everyone. And I'm going to continue to show the power and the glory of God. Which testifies again, which we should expect no less from Jesus, our Lord. But testifies again that here you have people. On both sides. But here you have people who have just accused you that your ministry is, is funded by the devil. Okay? That your whole ministry is basically on the backbones of Satan. That you are casting out demons by Satan. And that, that is all, all these things that you've done you would expect or hope. And we all do this. You just expect and hope that if you're doing good things that people would at least recognize that that people would at least maybe they don't support you maybe they don't agree with you but they would at least say man at least they're doing something good something that i always encourage us and caution us about because when you get into this whole man-made denominational system that we have gotten so entrenched in all you can do is look at other churches at times and even though they're doing good things for people the natural response is, well, but they're not us. They're not our group. That, yeah, I can't see their good things because, oh, yeah, but you know what else they do? Man, they've got this, they've got that, they do this wrong, they got that wrong. You see how they do? But can we just back away for a minute and go, but look at the good they are doing. You know, I've often wanted to put this out there that, you know, if you think about the idea of co competition amongst all these denominations, which ends up in kind of enveloping everyone, what if the greatest competition that we had was competing to see who could do the most good in the community we lived in? What, a, what an awesome thing that would be. You know, what a, what a shockingly amazing thing if the church was about doing good for other people. Man, that would just be crazy, you know, almost like something Jesus said. So I hope that we're always careful. Again, as we go through this, I always try to make us flip back and forth and go, which side do we normally lean towards? Are we leaning more towards the Pharisees 
Are we acting more like the Pharisees? Do we have more traits like the Pharisees? Because if we do, you know that's not a good position. Okay. Right after that in chapter 12, after Jesus lambasts them about what they said, he'll go and be like, you are the sons of vipers. How will you escape the damnation of hell? That doesn't need to be on your plaque by your church. Okay. So it should always caution us and encourage us to, as Jesus told his disciples, even those who are not amongst us or with us, it, no one can do a bad thing in my name or a good thing in my name. Okay, No one can do a good thing in my name and not be for us. So it's important for us to remember that and hold on to that and remember that we are all part of this kingdom. Okay. And we're all fighting the same enemy. And that enemy, is not, or that enemy is not each other. So as we continue on and we look through all this and we go through all this, we'll continue to look on at what Jesus does here. We've gotten down towards the end of the chapter and hopefully we'll move on into chapter 10. So God bless us to think on these things.